Hey, Tome Show listeners, it's time for Gen Con 2012, and this recording is coming to you straight from the con. That's right. We present to you here an unedited recording straight from the best four days in gaming. But be aware of what that means. We did not dictate the content. We are not censoring for language. And while our editor, Sam, will try to make the sound as good as possible, we're in a large room trying to capture as much sound as possible. So it may not be as crisp and clear as you're used to. With that said, we, as always, have to give credit to the folks who help us pay the bills around here, and that's Continue Magazine. It's a quarterly magazine for all sorts of gamers. Video, board, card, mini, and, of course, RPGs. Be sure to swing by ContinueMag.com, buy a magazine, and tell them thank you for supporting the podcast. Well, without further ado, your Gen Con 2012 recording. Whichever one it happens to be this time around. Enjoy! What about me? Can you hear me? No! <laughs> and can you hear me too? Alright, cool. Can I hear you? Yes. Yes! I guess. If a tree falls in a forest and no one's around to hear it. No. no keep going. Please go. Yeah. Uh, welcome to the Miniatures Board Games and Beyond. Uh, just going through uh, who we are up here. Um, my name is uh, Peter Lee. Um, for uh, some examples of things that I've done, I've been. Uh, part of the miniatures for Dean's since I was hired in about 2008. So, uh, a lot of the, the later uh, D&D miniature sets, uh, I was the lead designer for that. Um, in addition, I moved over to board games with Castle Ravenloft uh, with the start of the Adventure System game. So, I worked on uh, Ravenloft, Wrath of Shardalon, and Drips. And then, uh, in addition, Rodney and I worked on uh, Lords of Waterdeep. Um, and finally, uh, the Dungeon Command series. So I've been in board game land for uh, about three years now. It's been really, really cool. I'm Rodney Thompson. Uh, I, like Pete said, I worked with him on Lords of Waterdeep and Dungeon Command. Uh, I've also been a role-playing game designer for about 11 years now, so I have a lot of different random role-playing game credits as well. Uh, I work mostly on D&D 4th Edition lately, and uh, the Star Wars Saga Edition role-playing game, and I'm also the lead final designer for D&D Next. Hi, I'm Chris Dupuy. Um This is some of the stuff I worked with uh, previously. I was a freelancer for Hasbro. I worked uh, on a little bit of Heroescape, uh, Risk Legacy with Rob Davio. I did some editing work on Battleship Galaxies, and... Most recently, I've been working with these guys on Dungeon Command and the new version of Dungeon. That's who we are. That's who we are. So in today, just a brief overview, we're going to go over some of our design process, so how do we make these board games, uh, and then we're going to do a, a quick overview of our recent releases and uh, what's coming in the future. So, uh, and in the end, we'll finish up with some Q&A. We're going to uh, finish probably around 6.30 today, yep. I think. We have to... We have a meeting at 7 with the keynote that yep. we have to get over to. Uh, so we've got about an hour and a half to get through all this. So first, our design methodology. Um, so the three the three big things is, is we sit down and gather, gather ideas. We, we design the game, and then we work together um, to sort of explore the space of the game. So when we start with a game, we don't exactly know what's going to be fun with it. I mean, you don't have this roadmap to what makes the game fun. Um, so that's sort of the big process of that beginning step of the board game. Yeah, this is the point at which we start making 
some pretty basic prototypes. Like most most of our board game ideas, or most of our board games, end up coming out of individual ideas that one or the other of us will have, and then that turns into a hastily constructed prototype uh, that we throw on the table really quick and play. I mean, there are games that. Uh, we have put together in a matter of hours just throw it down on the table and play and at this point in the process all we're really doing is testing out one or two game mechanics or a general concept or something like that and and trying to see if there's any anything fun there because and now Pete and Chris can attest to this a lot of the time we'll throw together one of these hasty prototypes put it down and realize about 10 minutes in this is incredibly boring or this is the game is playing me instead of me playing the game. And, and a lot of those designs will sort of, uh, like, we'll see whether it's fun or not within the first hour or so of, of actually playing the game. And that's a really actually critical step in the process is that, that first prototyping step where we, we just are trying to see what is the core nugget of fun inside of our game idea. Anything, Chris? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jump in anytime. Yeah, whatever. You guys so, can just talk the whole time. Yeah, just, that's our plan. <laughs> uh, after after with, we're done with that initial uh, in, uh, initial design of a game, um, that's sort of where we start going more into the game development. And we usually do this by splitting off into you know our, our own work on our station and just brainstorming our, our, as many ideas as we can. Or well. Actually, not quite as many. It's more of many ideas. Many ideas. It's like a it's, focus group. It's it's usually what we do is a little bit every day where we will take okay we need to each come up with four good card ideas or four power ideas or something like that and then we sit down and, and combine and we uh, we we look at uh, what we like the best of these and then put them into the prototype to to try out the next time we play. Yeah, one of the things that we've discovered over the course of the last couple of years is that everybody's got a lot of ideas, and those ideas range from, wow, that's a really great idea, to what the hell were you thinking, right? And so with a lot of games, and this is definitely true in having worked in the RPG industry for a while, when you have one person doing all the design work, a lot of times what you'll get is you'll get all of their ideas. You'll get their good ideas, their mediocre ideas, and their what the hell were you thinking ideas. What we aim to do with our process now is we actually start by saying, okay, let's all do five different cards, for example. Let's do five new uh, uh, power cards for the adventure system. And then so we all come together and we've got one, two, three, we've got 15 cards. At that point, we're not looking to make 15 cards. We're looking to make five cards, right? And so we take the best five of those 15, which might be one of mine and two of Pete's and two of Chris's or some other combination thereof, where we only basically take the best ideas out and the rest get pushed to the side. One of the benefits of this as well is if you're sitting here and you have to design the five cards here and the 10 cards here and the 12 cards here and you're just trying to scramble to get everything done under deadline, um, you can tend to go a little safer. Uh, where you know you'll do one kind of crazy idea, but you'll tone it down a little bit so it doesn't get too out of whack because you don't have a lot of time to work on it. With this process, we can kind of throw whatever crazy ideas we have right up against the whiteboard, see what everyone else thinks. A lot of times we'll, we'll do some tweaks to the design right there and uh, end up coming out with a card that's stronger for it. Yeah. One of the, the best examples of how this process works is with Dungeon Command. Uh, I don't know if, has anybody here played Dungeon Command yet? A few? All right, cool. So in Dungeon Command, you've got these order cards that you use to uh, command your miniatures to take actions. All of those order cards that we designed were designed with this process, where basically we probably had actually designed 
two to three times as many order cards as actually got published just because we were always seeking to find the best cream of the crop to, to go into our decks. So after we get that final thing, uh, that final, well, the final experimental development, the next step is really to play test and then play test some more, <coughs> some more play test. So it's really important to just sit down and, and play the game and uh, see how it works. And after we do that, we sometimes find, well, this worked and this doesn't work. So often we go back to that previous step of, well, we don't have enough intelligence-based cards for this, so that we need to sit down and design three or four intelligence cards each to put those into the system and, and keep going. So it's this, this definite uh, iteration and refinement. And the benefit of having that excess design at the start is cards, uh, we can end up, if we want to make a 40-card deck, uh, once we're done with the um, uh, combining all our ideas together, we might have a 60-card deck of cards that we all kind of agree are really awesome and we want in the game. So with this iterative playtesting process, it's not always a big, huge design change that we're testing in between playtests. It might be just tossing a card out. This card was awful at this point, or, oh my god, this card was powerful, so make a quick tweak, and we'll try it again. And eventually we whittle that deck or, or that mechanic down to a point where we've got that core that we want that's really great. Yeah, the, the playtesting process is, obviously, we've said it's critical, but it, what it's really about is not just identifying problems, but also seeing what's working really, really well, so that we can then take another step back and say, okay, this is awesome, we really like this, can we do this again? Can we do this in a different way? And what ends up happening is, every time we play, we make some small incremental changes. It's not like, like Chris said, it's not a big overhaul, we make small incremental changes. So that might be dropping out a card, it might be changing a card, and one of the advantages of the way we work is that we can do things like, okay, that card was really bad, and just take and write over the, the the text on the card, okay, now this costs two instead of three or whatever, right? And and turn right around and play the game again. Uh, you'll notice that a lot of our games, with basically with the exception of Conquest and Nerath, we tend to aim for sub-one-hour uh, playtime in our games. That's good for two reasons. One, because there's not a lot of uh, one-hour games out there. A lot of board games uh, take a while, right? But the other side of that is that it lets us play our game more, right? Basically, I can play three games of Dungeon Command at the time it takes me to play Conquest and Nerath, or more yeah. even in many cases. And so what we're doing is we're constantly playing, make a small change, play again. Make a small change, play again. Um, I don't know if we want to talk about coming back to old ideas here, or... Okay, so I'm just going to talk about it. Uh, so one of the things that happens occasionally is we'll refine the game, refine the game, refine the game. We'll get you know a month down the road, and uh, we'll, we'll be at a point where the game doesn't really resemble what it looked like a month before. And we might have some ideas that we had thrown out from that previous step. Like, well, we don't really think this is going to work, or, well, we playtested this early and got rid of it. And then we'll go back to all those old ideas, all the things that have been cut, and check them again, because what's happened... Uh, with, with some of our games is we evolve the game to a certain point and realize that this thing that didn't work before now actually works great because of these other changes we made in the system. Now, a really good example of that is in, in Lords of Waterdeep. Um, early in the design, we had a lot of the, the, the quests when you completed them would, would sit out in front of you with some ongoing benefit. Uh, and as we were playing in that early early design, we had a lot of things going on and, and those would would start to clutter up the game and, and it was overwhelming because we had like, well, you, you complete three quests in your turn and 
you, every time you complete a quest, this happens, which does this, and this is a cascading effect. And as we, we, went, we, we took out a lot of these ongoing things, so at, at, at that point, quests were something you would complete and then you'd be done. Um, after, uh, after many iterations, we eventually settled, well, you can only complete one quest each time you assign an agent and, and a bunch of things like that. And so near the end of that design and development process, we looked back at, at those ongoing uh, quests, which became the plot quests in, in Lords of Waterdeep as these, these later entries. So. Yeah, okay, so here, here is played Lords of Waterdeep. All right, if you, all right, so you know what we're talking about when we say, you know, we're talking about plot quests. That's a pretty major element of the game now that almost wasn't in the game, yeah. right? Like, we were pretty late in the development process when we realized these plot quests, they didn't work a month ago or two months ago. Now, all of a sudden, because this other change we made, they suddenly work. We added them back in, and that was sort of the final piece that clicked in that we realized, okay, this game is done. Um, so... One of the things with when we're working on, on bringing in all these little bits of design, uh, we need to figure out what is what is good and, and what's bad. And the, the three things we're looking for that we've, we finally set on, we've, we've looked at many different things on how to evaluate. The three best ways that we've looked at it is, is our design needs to be thematic, it needs to be clean, and it needs to be bold. So that's, that's sort of our mantra on how we get our, our best best work. Um, there's a, a saying that you have. Uh, yeah, one, one of my favorite sayings is, uh, if our design doesn't scare us a little bit, we're doing it wrong, right? Like, you should, when we're, when we're putting together our design, if it's something like, oh man, this, this seems really awesome, it might be too awesome, like, that sort of feeling of this might be too awesome, or this, like, this might be too good, or holy crap, is anybody going to go for this? That's actually kind of essential to the process. Because a lot of, a lot of things that a lot of things that are now just sort of like, oh yeah, of course it works like that, started out as this crazy idea, or like, we have never done it this way before, can we possibly do it this way, or oh my god, that's so broken, and then we turn around and make other changes to bring that back around yeah. to, oh okay, this actually works now. Um, one of the things early, was uh, the first picture there, up there, when we were doing the early, uh, early water deep work, creating whatever flavor we want at that stage. We're not doing a lot of thought on, on uh, exactly what uh, these cards do. Um, sometimes a card comes from the flavor first, and sometimes it comes from the mechanics first. And in this case, we were brainstorming one. And, um, it actually was, it, so the, the first image here is from a card called um, Domesticate Owlbears, which, uh, if that doesn't make you giggle a little bit, uh, you have no soul. And uh, the, thing, the thing about that card is, I actually slipped Domesticate Owlbears into the deck to mess with Pete, because uh, it was called Trained Domesticated Owlbears. And I slipped it into the deck to just to mess with Pete, and it stayed, and it stayed, and like we kept iterating, and it stuck around, and it stuck around, and it stuck around. And then eventually, all of a sudden, we're doing the art order for the game, and oh, hey, there's a card that's got a tamer with a whip training an a domesticated owlbear. So guys, uh, we already did our intro introductions, uh, just for your benefit. Uh, this is Pete, this is Rodney, and I'm Chris. We work on our board games for D&D. &D. Uh, this is Dave Megary. Uh, I'm sorry. David McGarry. McGarry. <laughs> Apologies. Uh, he was the original designer of the dungeon board game, which we're going to talk about in a few minutes. Yeah. Um, 
I think at this point we can go into uh, some of the recent things that we've done. Um, uh, late last year we did uh, Legend of Drifts, that's the uh, third uh, game we mentioned system uh, series. So that's Castle Ravenloft, Wrath of Shadow, and Legend of Drifts. I was uh, the designer of that, um, and that was uh, a lot of fun. Um, think of any wacky anecdotes? No. Okay. So yeah, I actually have one. So. I, I did not meet Bob for, for a long time. I didn't Bob Salvatore. Bob Salvatore. I didn't meet him until uh, Gen Con last year when I had a, a VIG game uh, with him. So um, it was basically, I was demoing this for a, a couple of Gen Con uh, players, and he was one of the people playing the game with me. And it was really cool to just a little nerve-wracking as well to sit down with with, uh, with Bob to uh, actually have him play. He was playing Regis, and there is one card that basically, it was a, an encounter card that, that uh, took uh, one of the heroes off the board for uh, a turn, and Bob turned to me and said, that's a power that Regis should have, and I was able to go into the box and take out the power that exactly did that for Regis, and so that was yeah, it's always a little weird when you play the game based on someone else's stories or whatever. I, and we'll talk about Waterdeep here in a second. I had a similar experience last year playing uh, Lords of Waterdeep with Ed Greenwood and Steve Shin. Uh, and it was extremely nerve-wracking because uh, for those of you who played Lords of Waterdeep, you know that all the cards have you know quest names and flavor text, and there are all these references to classic uh, uh, Waterdeep in the Forgotten Realms. And then I'm suddenly sitting down and playing this with Ed Greenwood, and every time he draws a card, I'm going, oh my god, I hope all the text on that is accurate, or like, <laughs> oh, oh please let me have spelled that name right, or what have you. And luckily we got through the whole game, and he really liked it, uh, and he was like, you know, this is really great. But you only made one mistake. And I was like, oh, no, what is it? And he was like, this guy is actually the god of the dawn, not the god of the sun. And I was like, you know what? If that's the distinction, that's the thing I messed up, I will take it, right? So yeah, we were able to And we were able to get that, uh, get that fixed. So yeah, it turns out. <laughs> so if you're designing a game based on a very large, famous IP, my advice to you is to go play that game with the IP's creator, <laughs> just in case you all happen to be doing that. So if you're ever designing Star Wars, go hunt down George Find George Lucas, Lucas right. <laughs> I foresee no problems with that happening. <laughs> <laughs> so, Lords of Water, that came out in April this year. Uh, and this is our, uh, I guess, Wizards' first D&D Euro game. Yep, it's our first D&D uh, Euro. Euro style game. Um, strategy board game. Strategy board game. Uh, it's, uh, yeah, really hard to, to start with it. It's been, a, in some ways, a labor of love for Robbie and I. The idea for Lords of Waterdeep started out uh, two years ago, oh, let me try that again, three years ago? Yeah, three years ago on the game train. I don't know if anybody's a follower of mine on Twitter, but you know that uh, some of us take a train from Seattle to, to Chicago before Gen Con. Well, I'm on the, the train three years ago, no, two years ago, no, you're right, you're right, two years ago, math is hard. Uh, I'm on the train two years ago and I get the inspiration for this game and I come back from Gen Con with this uh, four page design document for Lords of Waterdeep and uh, it very rapidly materialized from there. Yeah, we would, it wasn't an assigned project for us and we would just uh, take our, our lunch hour and, and you know, it was almost like we were cheating or something. Like stealing time. Or stealing time and making this game. And then when we got it to a point that we were happy with it, we showed it to you know, our our higher-ups and the brand team and so forth, and everyone's like, we gotta make this game, so we yeah. made this game. 
So that would be tip number two for you, by the way. If you're ever wanting an idea for a game, take an extended train trip. I also give bad advice, so fair warning. From Amtrak? Yeah, yeah. Sponsored by Amtrak. So one, one really exciting thing with this, it's been out since April, and it's already got to number 36 on Board Game Geek, which is fantastic. Uh, it's so exciting to, to see so many people love this game and, yeah. and play it. Um, and, and we're really, really proud of this game. She also mentioned there's a Lords of Waterdeep tournament going on here at the show, uh, up in the board game room. So if you like Lords of Waterdeep, you can just walk up and jump in on it. So uh, there you go. And then uh, just last month we uh, we released uh, our our newest uh, miniature game, uh, miniature board game called Dungeon Command, um, and that is what we have uh, some examples of up here. Uh, it's a, a miniature skirmish game. I uh, want to introduce uh, Kevin Tatro right over there. Um, he's one of uh, the co-designers with me. Um, so we started, and then uh, the three of us picked up and continued iteration on it um, after Kevin fled to Colorado. And, and, uh, he ran far, far away. Yeah, yeah, I changed him out of the state, I guess. Um, but... Uh, that, that's our, our new game, um, and we have more Dungeon Command coming up shortly. So that gets us up to the present, basically. So first um, is uh, what's coming up in September of this year, and that is the uh, next uh, Goblin box for uh, Dungeon Command called Tyranny of Goblins. For those of you that don't know, Dungeon Command uh, is a tactical miniature skirmish game that's sold in these faction packs. And the faction pack is static, so whenever you purchase one faction pack, it's the same as the same faction pack. Uh, there's two out right now. Heart of Cormier, which has Adventures, uh, Sting of Wolf, which has Drow, and so our third one is going to be Goblin. Yep. And, and we'll have it up here for people to, to briefly see when we're done today. Um, it's a little hard to see from... Yeah, I could hold them up and show you, but you'd probably want to come up and look. So we, want, we wanted to show some of the uh, cards that are coming out in Dungeon Command. Uh, in the first two sets, they focused mainly on strength and dexterity. Uh, as we continue with more faction packs, we'll start to flesh out more of the other ability scores. Uh, for example, the uh, Dwarven Defender in the Heart of Cormier set had strength and constitution as his two abilities, and we don't have any constitution cards yet. Those are coming out in uh, starting with the Goblin set. So we have the Goblin Archer, who's a level one uh, creature, much like the uh, Elf Archer in the Heart of Cormier set. Uh, the difference is he hits really, really hard. He has a range attack damage of 20, but in melee combat, he's a weenie. He can't hit unless he's got some sort of bonus. And then we've got this Goblin Warcry card, which, like Constitution, is the first card for Charisma in this set. Charisma is going to basically be uh, leader-type cards, uh, so leaders on the battlefield that can help to influence other creatures in your warband. Uh, so, for example, this card gives all hobgoblins, goblins, and bugbears plus 10 to damage with melee attacks until the end of the turn. So he throws this down, and they go to town. I didn't mean to rhyme that. Sorry. Putin <laughs> didn't know it. <laughs> and then we've also got Strength in Numbers, which is another uh, Charisma card, pretty standard just gains a leadership. And leadership in this game gets you more reinforcements. So the more leadership you have, the bigger amount of troops you can put on the battlefield. And then we've got one of the commanders. Uh, each faction pack in Dungeon Command comes with two commanders. The commanders are the person you're playing as. Uh, they have their own unique powers, uh, different levels of creature hand, order hand, morale, and leadership. Uh, for example, Snig the Axe here 
Snig is unique in the fact that he can deploy creatures during the refresh phase, whereas everyone else has to deploy creatures at the end of your turn and have them take a beating if they've got enemies next to them. Snig can just sit back and relax, throw creatures out at the start of his turn, and send them out into the battlefield. Does anybody here used to play the old D&D minis game? Yep. Anybody here know whether Snig is the goblin or the axe? It's a, it's a trick question. Nobody actually knows. It's, in fact, we, we leave it as a mystery. That it, the first flavor text is, no one is really sure whether Snig is the goblin or the axe. So, an old uh, you know, favorite of, of mine. I mean, I, I came to the company through the old D&D miniatures. <coughs> so it's, it's something that I definitely wanted to, to bring forward with, with this new game. And then we're going to show you three of the minis that are coming out in this set. Uh, again, we've got them up here if you want to take a look at them, if you've already played some of the other Dungeon Command sets. Uh, so we've got the uh, Horn Devil, and the Goblin Archer, which we showed you earlier, and the Hobgoblin Soldier, which is a new sculpt for this set. Uh, as, you can, as you've seen in Dungeon Command, there's new sculpts in the boxes. Uh, in Sting of Wolf, there was a Drow Wizard. In uh, Heart of Cormier, there was the War Wizard, mm -hmm. and in this box, we've got the Hobgoblin Soldier. Uh, it's a pretty big basher on the battlefield. He's pretty cool. Uh, Heart of Cormier also features some of the first time you can get painted versions of some of the heroes from Ravenloft and Ashardalon. You've got the, the Human Ranger and the Half-Orc Thug and the Dwarf, Dwarf Cleric. Cleric are all uh, figures. First time they've been painted. Yeah. First time they've been painted. Uh, so who here has ever played one of these games? Raise your hand. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, that's what I thought. A lot of us got our start in D&D <laughs> with this game. Really? <laughs> I, I, I just have to say, I am here because of this game. Uh, the dungeon was, you know, I, I was born in, in 1974, and this was my entry into the D&D IP. This is the game that I fell in love with when I was a kid, so I definitely have to thank you for You're this. You're welcome. You want to talk a little bit about the original dungeon? Um, uh, yes, uh, I was part of the uh, Arneson um, uh, playing community. We would meet at, at his house, his parents' house in St. Paul, and we would play uh, miniatures, you know, part of the Napoleonic campaign. And we would come every Saturday and fight a battle between the Austrians and the French, or between the Germans and the French, or usually they involved the French. It's, it's <laughs> <laughs> one, one day the player showed up, and instead of a regular French battlefield that Arneson used to draw on his table, there was this castle sitting in the middle of the table and he had these new set of rules that he wanted to try out and needless to say we did not play Napoleonics for the next six weeks <laughs> we, we just glommed on to this new concept that he'd come up with and play, we're playing around with different ideas and he's slowly but surely revealing his dungeon and somebody figured out well we don't need to be with him personally we could call him on the phone. And so <laughs> David would end up in all his evenings, just all night long, talking, doing dungeon expeditions with people on the phone. And then Saturdays turned, normally we quit at 6 o'clock. He'd be throwing us out at 11 after the dinner break. And he finally had to cut, cut us off, so to speak. 
They're only going to do it on Saturday in the regular way, and then we're going to have to throw some Napoleonic battles in here because there's a bunch of people that don't really, that they want Napoleonics, and so we had to negotiate. Um, but one of the things that came out of that experience of watching David being overwhelmed by being the only referee was how could he play his own game? And the referee is a special character in the game playing of Dungeons and Dragons. And I said, is there a way to create a game system where the referee could be dropped out, but we still capture the flavor and fun of what RPG was? And so I analyzed the, uh, the system that he had, and I said, what do I have to get rid of? Well, I have to expose my dungeon, because that's what the dungeon master does, is to reveal the dungeon 10 feet, 20 feet, 30 feet, at an intersection, there's a door in front of you, right? That, that's sort of the scenario. The monster jumps out, he describes it. So the next thing that was is, well, how do I get the combat, you know, without having to look up tables and, and, and that people would find it simple enough to be able to deal with the uh, uh, whole concept of combat. I, I had in mind that this game should probably be because RPG was so much fun, I wanted it to be out for the whole world, not just us Napoleonic uh, uh, miniature players. And so I put them on the cards and had one table that allowed you then that you had a rule, you found your character, you saw the number on the, uh, on the card that you had to beat, you just rolled the dice, and then if you beat the monster, you got the prize. If you didn't, then we had another, only one other table, which was the combat losing table, and this is how the monster beat you up. <laughs> um, and what was the last thing? I, I wanted to get away from the, 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 the you roll dice for movement. That was another concept, because everybody was rolling dice to move their pieces around boards and stuff, and I, I wanted to try to break that mold a little bit in order to to, to give them a, a choice within, constrained, but still a choice. And following the, the, real, the real crux of the game design is the little bit of action and a little bit of reward. Sort of a positive reinforcement idea that everybody could have. It would go around fast enough so that you could then do it again. And that, that, that allowed a, uh, an enjoyment that even though you couldn't be a dungeon expedition, per se, you all had to be individual. That was another consequence of having to get rid of the referee, because referees always had to adjudicate what happened within the party. Then you would go and be the individual character and, and roam around. So um, with that in mind, I, I put it all together on uh, it was like 72 hours. Uh, I just got this inspiration, and I started on a Friday afternoon. I got maybe four hours of sleep on Saturday sometime, another four hours on Sunday. Putting all the pieces together, getting the, I taped the, made the little squares, and I taped them out of construction paper, and taped them on the board, and figured out the, um, the monsters, and, and uh, treasure mix, you know, you, you have to sort of, what I call balance the game, and you, ha you have to make sure that the 
the prizes match the, the monster types for the level that they're at. So that, and you also want to give each player, even though they have really disparate abilities, all the way from an elf up to a wizard, the equal opportunity to be able to win the game. You can't, can't have it that, oh yeah, the real powerful creature always, you know, character always wins the game because he's really powerful. You have to have balance so that the, the weaker creature, the weaker player, has a chance to actually win the game. And I think I did, I, I'm very happy with how it turned out. Yeah. And, so, oh, no, go ahead. No, oh, okay. <laughs> if you get me going, I'll just pontificate. <laughs> we're, we're really excited about the game. Uh, and as you can see, since uh, 1975? It came out in 1975. I did it and uh, came up the prototype in October of 1972, um, before David and Gary actually finished you know, getting their rules put together. But because uh, a board game of this sort of dimension in the way that I had designed it at the time, it's a very expensive game to make. Much easier to come out with a, a set of rule booklets that you can just, you know, turn the presses on. Maybe you can't turn them off quick. The presses off quick enough to, you know, send it to Not the same way with dealing with a board game. You know. um, but uh, the, um, the, the sort of the history of how this came about, uh, and this is going to be, there's an irony here. Uh, my first game, I decided that, oh, I want to try to sell it. So I, I approached Parker Brothers, which is one of your <laughs> sister companies, and they rejected it. And so I, I had the game out to uh, Lowry Publications in Maine in, in 1973, and they, he, wasn't, he couldn't afford it. So I went out to, to Maine, I got the prototype back. I was living in Boston at the time, I said, well, I'll give Parker Brothers another shot. So I wrote another letter, and I got another nice rejection. <laughs> but I find it really ironic that ultimately, uh, it's, the game is now being published by Wizards of the Coast, which is a division of Hasbro, which actually owns Parker Brothers. <laughs> <laughs> uh, is, uh, but I've always wondered if, 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 they, if Parker Brothers had actually taken the risk, and that maybe it would have been Parker Brothers capturing the wave of the Dungeons and Dragons phenomenon. And that they would have been buying Hasbro. <laughs> we will never know now. <laughs> well, uh, since it came out in 1975, we've done a lot of different reissues, uh, reprints of it. Uh, I believe in 81, 87, and 92. Uh, and so it's been a little while since it's been on the shelves. So we wanted to bring it back out. Uh, so if you flip to the next slide, uh, it'll be coming out in October. Uh, it is very, very similar to the 1981 version, uh, which I'll show you the box of that one in a minute, so you, if you have played that one, you'll recognize it. Uh, and it's going to be uh, out for $20, uh, which we were really, really excited about. Having a low MSRP, we wanted to get families playing this game, uh, and it, I mean, it's a game that, that got us into the system, so we wanted to try and have it as low a price point as possible. So, uh, this version of Dungeon is based very, very closely on that 1981 uh, reprint of Dungeon. Uh, and if you hit the next slide, we've got some comparisons on some of the cards uh, as they were in 1981 and as they are now. A uh, couple of quick tweaks that we've made. Uh, the wizard still throws his fireball and his lightning bolt and he is still a class. 
the elf uh, and the hero and the superhero have changed to the rogue, the cleric, and the fighter. So when you play, uh, you get one of these colored pawns, which is horrible for any of you past row two to see. Uh, but we have, we have these cardboard pawns that you play as. Uh, there is two for each class, so there's a total of eight players that can play. And uh, you flip over these monster cards, you roll two dice, and you compare it to see if you kill the monster. If you kill the monster, you get treasure, and each class is going for a certain uh, amount of treasure. And that's some of the balancing that uh, David was talking about, in that the stronger heroes need uh, bigger uh, gold rewards. So they need to go into the more dangerous sections of the dungeon in order to gain those rewards. So uh, that's in October. Uh, then in November, we're just going to keep throwing stuff out there. We've got the undead box of Dungeon Command, and we'll try to scoot this along so we can get to Q&A, yep. uh, if you want to throw all three cards up. So we've got the zombie who's level one. Uh, he is one of the first creatures that can deploy from a graveyard. So you throw him out there, he's really beefy at 40 hit points, he gets killed, you throw him right back out there. It does cost a little morale, but uh, it allows you to expand your hand size and really keep throwing at, uh, undead at them. Uh, then we've got another charisma card that allows all your other creatures to shift. And uh, we've got a new equipment card, the magic short sword, uh, that when you attach it to a creature, their attacks cannot be prevented. You can't cower, you can't play immediates to prevent the damage. They are just tearing through your troops, so you gotta take them down. Uh, Delthrin Everett is one of the commanders in the box. Uh, he starts with a low leadership. Uh, but every time you kill a creature during your turn, you gain one leadership. So his forces just keep getting stronger as he kills your forces. And we've got three of the minis. Uh, this is the Lich Necromancer. Sorry. Uh, this is one of the new sculpts. Uh, really awesome. Uh, his lower body is uh, the clear plastic, so it's This is the disciple of Caius, who, uh, uh, what did I want to say about him? I have no idea. Damn it! Uh, so, the disciple of Caius, anybody recognize the name Caius out here? Yeah, all right. Uh, Age of Worms, this guy is uh, uh, flavorfully based on uh, Caius from the Age of Worms. These are, are very preliminary uh, sculpts, for instance, um, the brown you see on this will actually be green in the final. Because I have the skull. green worms. Uh, Then we also have the uh, 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 warrior skeleton. It's a similar sculpt to a previous skeleton, but he's got a hand axe instead of a sword, um, so he's, he's slightly different. Um, so one of the, the things with this uh, this box is it, it heavily features intelligence, uh, charisma, and constitution. So a lot of the uh, corporeal undead, like skeletons and zombies, they use uh, constitution. Uh, they're these big, tough, damage-preventing guys. The charisma creatures are often, the charisma undead are, are, are more of the uh, incorporeal uh, undead, so they, they have like howls and, and, and uh, things to frighten like your that, opponents, yeah. stuff like that. Um, and then finally, there are a lot of spellcasters uh, with the, the, the cycle of Caius and the Lich Necromancer, and we have a we have a, we third, do have a third one. A third one but, but it's uh, a secret. secret. Um, so that's uh, um, uh, intelligence. And then we've got Blood of Grumpsh, which is the orc set that's coming out in February 2013. 
we've got something cool to show you. It might take a second to pull yeah. up. So this is uh, this is our this will be our fifth box, right? Yeah, this will be our fifth box. The the really nice thing about this box is every miniature in this box is is 100% new. So it's, uh, uh, back to normal here is um, a good uh, site of this one. We're really, really excited about these guys. Yeah, this is a, a good... Um, is the Orc Chieftain? This is the, the Orc Chieftain, yes. And one of the neat things is these are all cab sculpts, so we can have a little bit of fun uh, with this. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. The, we the, can't promise that the ones that you guys buy will actually walk off of their pedestals. We can't promise, but you can try. Right. <laughs> In your imagination. Um, so one of the things this features uh, a, a sort of a new look to the orc uh, that is. Um, it's it's based on a lot of the work that uh, John Shindahedi and the art directors are doing uh, for D and D Next, basically. Uh, so these orcs uh, all have a unified look. And you guys have played the old minis game. You know that the orcs could vary a little bit in their appearance. Uh, this, since we're basing it all off the same model, and that model is in turn based off of the artwork that uh, John and his teams are doing. They all look much more like a, a unified faction than they did yeah. uh, previously. So it's, it's a tremendous power to, to have the CAD sculpting because you can use the, the same it's base orc. It is the Everyone same orc. Everyone knows basically. what the orc looks like and then you just you change hair and ears and things like that. Um, we have to, minis to show? We do have minis to show. But we have cards first. Cards. So we've got the orc druid, uh, constitution wisdom guy that can throw beasts and elementals adjacent to him. Uh, Stomp, which is the first con card we've shown. Uh, shift three squares and deal 30 damage all around you. And Beastmaster, which works with beasts to give them plus 10 damage. So you can make a lot of uh, really cool wisdom beach, beast decks with some of these cards because they uh, there are a lot of the, the uh, beast creatures in here. This is uh, Strength, Con, and Wisdom, is that correct? Strength, Con, and Wisdom, yep. Here's one of the leaders, Lokar the Stones, uh, and, and um, this guy has a, a deployment. If you've seen the um, the Shadow Mastiff from the previous mm. set, where he deploys somewhere other than the start area, at the, the start of the game, you can deploy an orc on an unoccupied treasure square somewhere. Um, so it's a little bit of a, a forward scout for you. So orcs jump out of treasure chests is yes, what we've yes. communicated today. <laughs> orcs, you know, stand in ten foot by ten foot box over a pile of uh, pile of gold. So, um, this is uh, the new ogre uh, that we have in the set, uh, and we have um, uh, this is the orc archer and the orc cleric of groups. Again, all new sculpts. Of course, all new paint since it's all new sculpts. And based off of the sort of ongoing work for the next iteration of D and D, we're really, really excited about these uh, these next few sets for Dungeon Command. Yeah, and this is this will be out in February. Um, let's see, and beyond. So we can't get really too specific about what we're working on beyond that point because you know we don't really get the chance to talk about products that are too far out. But uh, I think we want to take a moment to talk about sort of the kind of things that we're thinking about. Uh, obviously, one of our big successes recently is Lords of Waterdeep, mm -hmm. uh, not only because Pete and I worked on it, but also because everybody seems to like it. Um, we haven't really done a lot of standalone expansions yet for 
uh, for our board games. Mostly, instead of you know an expansion for for Castle Ravenloft, we did Wrath of a Shardalon, which was its whole a whole game that also expanded that. Right. Uh, likewise, these Dungeon Command box sets they each stand on their own, but they're not a, a dedicated expansion to the other ones. Right. Um, we want to do some experimentation with that, and it seems like Lords of Waterdeep is the kind of thing that we, where we would want to do that. I mean, it's pretty traditional among modern board games and Euro games for an expansion to be sort of an add-on to the base game. Um, so that's one of the things we're exploring right now. We don't really have any specifics to talk about at this time, but it's definitely something that's sort of in the works. And I'm always thinking of the next adventure system game and what we can do from that. Uh, I can't go into any sort of details on, on where we're going from that. Um, there is one thing uh, with uh, a bit of a change in philosophy behind d in general, where uh, if you've been reading through Mike's d uh, d Next uh, articles, he talks about the, the three pillars of, of D&D. Right. We, Mike talks about um, uh, exploration, combat, and interaction as sort of our three big, the three big things that make D&D what it is. And one of the things with the, the previous uh, uh, adventure sim games is that they're very uh, they're very combat heavy, and so in the future I want to go more to what what makes you know, D and D special with mm-hmm. with exploration and and problem solving and, and so forth. So this whatever comes late next will be um, quite a bit different. Uh, and we've had three adventure system games so far that have all been uh, very successful, but we're sort of getting to the point where we want to start trying new things. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, we'll try and have as much backwards compatibility as we right. can. Right, right, absolutely. But, um, yeah, we've got some exciting things in the future. All right, so uh, we're going to do some questions for a little while. Uh, there's obviously plenty of stuff in here to talk about. I'm sure, Dave, you don't mind fielding any uh, questions about Dungeon, do you? Cool. All right, so if you guys would please, uh, if you have questions, line up. The We've got two microphones there. If we could just use the front one, that would be great. Uh, if anybody has any questions at all. Anyone? Yay. Yay. Don't be afraid. We won't mock you. Probably pretty straightforward one. Um, so you talked a little bit about the two ability scores we haven't seen yet in Dungeon Command. Uh, we've only seen one card from Wisdom. So what does Wisdom do? So Wisdom, you'll see uh, a bit more of that in the Orc box, um, and it's got uh, the big thing is the the power of, of uh, divine magic, effectively. So uh, clerics and and druids would be a big a big focus for those sorts of. Abilities. So, um, healing is uh, definitely one of the major strengths of wisdom. Healing other people. Healing other people. Yeah. Right. Constitution is a little bit more focused on healing, healing yourself, yourself yeah. and preventing damage. I think you can probably use a lot of healing characters on the, the character caster. That, right. You know, that cast but wisdom is probably where you're going to see a lot of uh, of your sort of uh, healing other people. Uh, also, some sort of ongoing magical uh, buffs on other people as well. Good. Go ahead. So so far in the so far in the Dungeon Command sets, there's been some stuff for the D and D Adventure System, mm-hmm. um, but there haven't been like any like hero cards or um, like some of the stumps and stuff like that. Um, have you guys thought about possibly taking uh, additional heroes to use in uh, the Adventure System? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, 
They're a little trickier. Yeah, there's a lot more that goes into designing a hero, and well, and plus there's more physical components, right? Because yeah, you got to have the that, card, and then you got to have several action cards as well, yeah, right? Yeah. Do you want to talk about designing heroes for the three different? Because oh, okay. you know you can't really design one for. Three. It's my brain breaking. Okay, I broke Pete's brain. But, uh, <laughs> so the long and short yeah. of it is that there's a, there's a lot of components. Yeah, the, the big thing with the, the, the character in, in those games uh, takes a long time for the, the playtesting to go through. I mean, we can, we can playtest the, the monster AI for one particular monster in, in fairly quickly, but to, to go through with a, a good solid experience for a hero and daily powers and etc. That'd be uh, a little bit more uh, difficult and involved Involved and might not uh, be the, the experience that, that you'd want. Um, so that's one of the things with the with Heart of Cormier featuring a lot of the good guys that has the, instead the allies that you come in and, and, and recruit. So you don't fight most of the adventure system guys in Heart of Cormier instead you, you uh, encounter them and bring them along for uh, a couple of, of uh, tiles effectively until they die usually. <laughs> and they do, as all hirelings do, they die quickly. Sir? Uh, is, uh, is Dungeon Command to be the D&D minis of the future or is there another product line that will broaden the number of minis available for play uh, and miniatures play in the future and uh, how do you on a going forward basis maintain the balance between the, the boxes and such that every set remains competitive and the you know, sustainable box set doesn't become obsolete when you're sure. Well, one of the things, so to answer your first question first, uh, for the foreseeable future, these are sort of our primary skir miniature skirmish products. Um, and so uh, one of the things, and we didn't really talk about it, one of the things that was sort of the genesis of Dungeon Command was that we had a lot of requests for non-random minis, right? And so this is one of the primary ways that we're trying to get that out there. Uh, so for the foreseeable future, Dungeon Command is sort of our, our focus for miniatures uh, combat. As for uh, keeping older sets competitive, I think one of the things that we aim for is actually not only to keep them competitive just by the balance of the cards, but also to make each subsequent set that comes out reach backward and make some of those sets better. So for example, um, when you mix and match your cards, if you, if you play with Sting of Wolf and all of a sudden the Undead set comes out, now you've got some Wisdom cards that are out that that Drow Priestess can use so that the Drow Priestess mini is now all of a sudden better than she was before, right? And you see it, like you'll see it several times, and I'm sure Chris wants to jump in here and talk about this too, you'll see it several times where creatures or order cards in subsequent sets are meant to work not only with the things in that set, but also reach backwards. So that Orc Druid, for example, can uh, deal with beasts. We've got other beasts in the game uh, going backwards as well. So there's there's definitely an attempt to make sure that this is all one cohesive game as well as each individual set being being able to stand alone and be competitive. When we like we talked about earlier with our design process and the iterative changes that we make to those decks as we're creating them. Uh, when we first initially start testing them, we test them both against themselves and against the established factions. So most of the grind work done with playtesting on new faction packs is against the core faction packs uh, that are already out there. So we want, we want to make 
players feel like they can pick this up and be competitive. They don't have to buy one of every and get into the deck building. We want them to. I mean, that's an exciting part of the game. But we also want someone to go and grab this set and feel like they can play at someone else's house. Uh, so we want to make sure that they are competitive against each other, both from a pick-up-and-play set, but also that they uh, feed into the system and start to flesh out all the ability scores so that it'll uh, encourage the deck-building aspect of it. Are there plans to encourage organized play for the new event? Yeah, actually, uh, Chris Tulak, our organized play manager, was here. He popped in his head for a second. He fled. Um, we had Dungeon Command Game Day uh, on, I think, July 21st. Uh, where we had the alternate paint uh, Drow Wizard promo. Along with that, we also sent uh, alt art cards for one card from each box. We sent a pack of cards to each of the stores. I'm not uh, sure, I'm not sure those are, are there in the stores. At this point? They are in the stores. Yeah, they I'm came sure. with the game day pack. So the stores have these uh, packs of alt art cards, and there's instructions on how to encourage uh, organized play, setting up tournaments and having these alt art cards as uh, tournament prize support. Uh, so organized play is something that we definitely want to promote for this product. Yeah, additionally, we're looking at things like having tournaments at conventions and things like that. It's just this is sort of, we're at the beginning of the, the line, and we want to ramp up to that kind of thing. But yeah, it's absolutely on the radar. Hi. Uh, I want to compliment you with, um, when you're saying even positive incentive, I thoroughly enjoyed Castle Ravenloft for the fact that um, it's, it's the first game I've enjoyed losing to that much. <laughs> the original stories were so strong. Are you going to continue to drive the stories with these game, the games, or are they, um, or are the stories coming first from another angle, and then you're finding better and more uh, versatile ways for players to implement? The uh... I think we always want to do a little bit of both. I mean, when, when you open up a product, you want to see the story that we're trying to unfold, but we also want you as the players to find your own combos, to find your own awesome hero moments so that you can start to create your own stories. So obviously the, the, the stories of the chapters in the adventure book uh, progressing along um, uh, and focusing on each of them individually is important, but also uh, making each hero and each monster have their moment that comes across on the table that might not have been so obvious when you started to look at the cards. Because all of us board game collectors, we open up our box and we look through all the cards and we read them all and we put them away and two weeks later we finally pull them out and play. Uh, we want that initial play, we want the continuing plays to continue to open up more story avenues. Uh, yeah, the, really the story of a game is the story you tell at the table when you sit down and play it, right? But what we also want to do is make sure that since these are Dungeons & Dragons games, and Dungeons & Dragons is a, an IP with 40 years of history behind it, and worlds and stories and characters, we want to make sure that there's enough of the familiar in there that when you sit down to play, you're like, oh yeah, I remember, I know who the Xanathar is because I played the old Eye of the Beholder or, any, or Super NES game or whatever, right? Which is a thing that I've heard people say, right? That <laughs> Like we want that. I, it was a thing that I say. It's true. Uh, you found out my dirty secret. I'm a nerd. Uh, so the, I know. Shocking. All right. 
Jeff is quickly typing here. Uh, no, but we, like that, we want to make sure that the, the game is steeped in that kind of lore because that's what you come to a Dungeons and Dragons game for, right? Like you come to it because you like D and D, because you you grew up with it. And it's a part of your culture, right? So that's always going to be a big part of the game that we're designing. But at the same time, we want to make sure that these games aren't us telling you a story, it's you telling us a story using our parts, right? Like using the, the miniatures and the characters and the, the dungeons and stuff like that. So it, it is absolutely a, a two-way street there. Excellent question. Yeah. Does anybody else have any questions? Don't be shy. You look shy. No, I'm kidding. Uh, when it comes to like backwards compatibility, um, did... Are you guys creating things like ahead of time and then setting it off to the side for maybe like a later deal? Or, or do you just come up with the ideas and then go, oh, well, we should do this that would work with this previous idea that we had? A little before. bit of both. Yeah. Um, in, in the case of uh, Dungeon Command, after Kevin's initial turnover with uh, what would become Heart of Cormier and Sting of Loaf, uh, the three of us sat down, and, and over a span of a couple of weeks, we did the preliminary design for the goblins, the undead, and right. the orcs. Right. And so we were able to, like, oh, this fits with this, and this fits with this, and this fits with that. And so that was a case where we had a lot of the content that we could program, you know, connections with and, and exciting sort of content. Yeah, and even at that point, both uh, Cormier and Lolth, neither of those were, were all the way through development yet, so we could go back and make those changes. So in a lot of ways, we do design many things, then chop it up, because that's we know. Like we knew going into it, like, well, we got these five sets, we need to make sure we got enough cards for each, enough creatures for each, et cetera. So we, could, we had the advantage of, of you know, knowing where we were going to be able to put all that stuff together. Uh, but then you turn and look at the adventure system cards in here. Obviously, the adventure system had been designed long before we started working on this stuff. So that was a case where we did have to sit and say, okay, we need to design content that works with this older system that, that we hadn't planned for from the beginning. And another example for uh, feeding back into the system, when we cut cards out of a deck, it's not always because it's bad. Uh, right. It might just not work. It doesn't feel goblin-y. It doesn't feel orcish. Um, and it goes into a file. We don't throw things out and toss in the trash and forget about it. We it goes into it goes into a file, which when we start to look at a new faction pack, we'll start to think of those ideas. Oh, we had that card that was really cool. This would be perfect here. So we dig it out of the file, and we throw it right in. So we always have that pool of ideas that maybe they weren't cut because they were horrible. They just weren't right for this box. And sometimes we end up promoting things very quickly, like in the the Goblin and I think it was the Goblin box, Brody put together a card that was called Secret Door, which we just fell in love with because it did so much for the game and, and it didn't feel very Goblin-y, but it did feel very drowy. so we moved that one into, uh, and into, the into, a, into yep. a slot that, that where in our playtesting the card ended up not working, so we cut that one. And, moved uh, uh, Secret Door out. Yeah, it actually got pushed forward. Yeah. Because yeah. 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 it was just that cool. I love that card. Right. Anyone else have some questions for us? All right. Well, we're uh, done a little bit early. Uh, Peter and, and Chris and I will hang out. I don't know if Dave's going to have a chance to hang out for a few minutes or not, but if you guys have any other questions, you can come out and ask. We do have the sets for Goblins and the, an open copy of Dungeon up here if you want to come take a look at those. Uh, thanks a lot for coming, everybody. Thank you.